Welcome to Behave Intelligently, an uncensored exploration of behavior in the workplace, life, and the larger world. Behave Intelligently is co-hosted by fellow behavioral enthusiasts, Jay Johnson and Mark Garrison, and produced by the amazingly talented team at Coeus Creative Group. Thanks for joining this week's edition, where we're going to talk about Persuasion Part 2, The Tools of Influence. In this case, we actually had uh, a really nice discussion about persuasion and ethics last time we were on the show, and uh, it actually generated a user comment and the question mark, so I'm going to pose this to you from one of our users, was, is it ethical to sell something like water? Water being a natural resource, water being something that is a necessity for human life and survival. What's the ethics around selling something like water? What are your thoughts? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a difference between a... Uh, selling a product versus controlling the resource, in my opinion. And that's sort of where I'm drawing, I'm going to sort of draw that ethical line. Um, I think you can sell bottles of water and, and be ethical about it, uh, as long as you're not uh, controlling the resource of the water source. I guess I'm, I'm not okay. sure if I'm clear on that, but in my head, it seems very clear. <laughs> I, I think I think I like that distinction. You know, obviously, plastics aside. Sure. So let's just get that part of the conversation out of the way, and say, is it when we think about something like water, which is a natural resource, which is something that uh, is obviously a necessity for survival? You know, limiting somebody's access to that resource, I think, is you know, obviously unethical. And that's, uh, unfortunately, we know from history and everything else that wars are fought over natural resources and water or even food or land or any of those types of things. I think when we look at something like uh, an actual, we'll call it just the bottling of water and selling that as a commodity, there's obviously a lot that goes into that, right? There's the ownership of the resource, which I think is what you're talking about. But then there's also the, um, you know, the bottling aspect of it, the manufacturing aspect of it, the distribution aspect of it. And all of those things take labor, they take time, they take energy. And, you know, people that are doing that work obviously want to be compensated for such work. So I, I think it's one of those where this is a really challenging conundrum because, Obviously, water is something that you pay for, even if you're paying for it out of the tap or whether you're paying for it to be bottled. So, you know, free water for all, I, I don't know. I think that that is an ethical question. So we want to hear from you, users. What are your thoughts on this? You can uh, send your ideas or concepts to podcast at coeuscreativegroup.com. Do you feel like it's ethical to sell something like a natural resource? Uh, an interesting story on this, uh, you know, as a child, I don't recall bottles of water being sold everywhere. Like growing up, I remember seeing iced teas, sodas, uh, you know, things like that. But you didn't see bottles of water as popular as they are today. And I remember uh, as a kid, uh, my parents brought me to some kind of, some type of an amusement park. I don't remember if it was like a Walt Disney World or or what it was. 
But it was so hot that day. And all my dad wanted was something to drink like water. And he couldn't find a place that was, that was selling like a bottle of water. And so he asked the, the person selling snow cones, if he could just get a snow cone without any syrup flavoring in it. And they were like, I don't, I don't understand. What are you asking for? You know, because he was trying to cha- change what they were so used to. And he's just like, I'm just thirsty. I just want that. He was willing to pay whatever he could to get an unflavored frozen cone of just frozen water, right? Ice. Um, <laughs> Ice. So I, I think there's yeah. also a bit of a, you know, what is the consumer willing to pay for for an item? But there's also that argument of the, the water, the, the bottling companies for water, they are pulling that water out of a source. And I know that's a hot topic here in Michigan with some of the different water companies pulling water out of the Great Lakes. And so I think, you know, a combination of some regulation as well, because I don't, you know, if, if it were up to the, the, the water uh, bottle companies, they'd suck all the water out of our Great Lakes to sell their product, right? And, and so I think there's that fine us. line of, of that question too. Yeah, no, I would agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And interesting, you know, it used to be that you would just drink your water out of your tap or it would be, uh, you know, I remember when I was playing hockey, we'd have sports bottles, um, reusable plastic sports bottles. But I think that there was also an expectation of being able to use like public water fountains or, you know, and I think some people kind of shy away from that, especially in a post-COVID world. I don't know how many people are going to be dipping down right. and put their face next to a uh, water fountain any longer. So I think it's a really interesting conundrum yeah. that you could find yourself in. So yeah, we definitely want to hear from you, though. Let us know your thoughts. And uh, today we're going to focus a little bit more on an overview of some major influence tools. So we talked about the ethics, we talked about sort of what is persuasion and how that functions. Today we're going to give you some different actionable things that you can incorporate into your marketing, that you can incorporate into your sales proposals that are proven tools of influence. And Uh, You know, this is, uh, we'll probably end up going deeper on some of these. So this is really just meant to be an overview into some of these tools, uh, many of which come well studied by one of our favorite authors, Robert Cialdini, uh, but also some of our own and some of our own experiences with them. So I thought we'd start with the influence tool of liking. And uh, if you've ever been to one of my body language trainings, you've definitely heard me use the phrase, if people like you, they will do business with you. And if they don't like you, they will make it their business to disrupt you. Um, But I think sometimes we forget just how impactful liking can be as an influence tool. Do you think liking, we hear in the news all the time about, you know, the so-called cancel culture. Is that a, they don't like you, so they will do anything to disrupt you? I mean, in a big way, yeah. And it's interesting. I'm actually writing an article on cancel. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm writing an article on cancel culture. You know, a lot of people have so much rejection against it, like, oh, this new cancel culture that we have. It's not new. This is literally, cancel culture literally has existed since the dawning of human existence. Like if you were kicked out of your tribe um, for violating a social norm in the past, 
you were probably given a death sentence. And I think what people are really upset about is not so much that aspect because we've all separated ourselves from a friend that was maybe not a great friend, or we've all separated ourselves from a brand that maybe didn't align with us. I think where people are getting really frustrated and, and they blur this distinction is really um, the amplification of it on social media or how quickly something can spread on it in social media, and then also the complete lack of privacy. So not to go too far down that rabbit hole, but yes, I mean, essentially what you're saying is, if somebody violates my expectations as a consumer or violates my friendship, uh, my trust, my empathy, my feelings, then ultimately they get canceled. And it's kind of the same thing with liking as a concept. If I like you, it is much more difficult for me to cancel you or to essentially uh, not listen to so your listening is a key people. if they're not hearing what i'm what i'm saying is important to me or what i value it creates this misalignment of my values and what they're doing and then i no longer like them and say they should be canceled or i'm not going to do business with you or things along those lines yeah, in a big let me give it let me give a case study. One of the case studies that I have loved over the years reading about was there's an insurance agent who consistently year after year was the top performing producer in a group of hundreds of thousands of insurance agents around the country. And uh, he was studied and so was his colleagues and they were looking like what is it that this person does that makes uh, such a big difference. And the interesting thing was is amongst all of the different insurance agents that were studied at this point, they all had the same tools. They all had the same approach. They all had the same sort of uh, interactions and same marketing, et cetera. The one thing that this person did that was ever so slightly different was when they were in and they were meeting with a the client, they would say, and when it happened the first time, Cialdini talks about this in Persuasion, um, but the first time that they were in with a client, and Cialdini was with him, he said, hey, go ahead and fill out this pre, you know, this pre-form. I left something in the car. I'm going to go grab it real quick. Can I let myself back in? And they would say, yeah, of course. And then he did that exact same thing. I left something in the car. Can I let myself back in? Well, yeah, of course. And he did this over and over and over again at each one of these individual uh, you know, sales meetings that he had. And Cialdini is just like, what's going on there? You know, wh what are you doing? And he's like, come on, Bob, you know what I'm doing. And, and the reality was, is he was planting this message. Who do you just let walk into your house? A friend, a family member, somebody that you trust, that you're close to. He was loading this persuasive message that ultimately was to foster feelings of liking and relationship building. Now we can get into whether or not that's ethical. Uh, that is a very, very sophisticated understanding of the human psychology and the nature of human psychology, but the numbers don't lie. This person was the most successful year after year after year. And when you think about it, if you and I are friends and I ask you to do something, you don't really want to do it. You may feel that obligation. You may feel, oh, well, we're friends and I'm going to do that. And that's really what it comes down to is how can you create messages um, for your friends? And how can you treat your customers like friends? Can you listen to them? Can you be empathetic to them? Can you truly understand them or where they're coming from? Can you respect them, acknowledge them? Can you be authentic with them? I think all of that plays into the liking questions.
So liking's pretty broad. We got uh, listening, uh, caring, attraction. Uh, now, attraction, is that physical attraction or is that attraction to their product or service or company brand so or all of the above? All of the above. Interestingly, they've done studies where they've measured how an audience viewed the attractiveness from a physical aspect of the speaker and then measured them for how persuasive they were afterwards. And it was uh, very statistically significant shown that if you find somebody attractive physically, you are more likely to be persuaded by them. But they also tested things of attraction such as intelligence and humor and kindness and authenticity. And does that have an impact on attractiveness and persuasion? And the answer was a categorical yes. Like if we find uh, the values of somebody attractive or their personality attractive, that we ultimately end up finding them more persuasive than somebody that we don't. So a really interesting aspect there. And that makes sense. And, and liking as a category is sort of a, a positive in nature. So I would also assume staying positive in your messaging, staying positive in uh, your beliefs or what your product might do in terms of an impact is probably also something that's important in the liking category of influence. Absolutely. Nobody loves an Eeyore, you know, somebody that's always down Eeyore. Oh, it's the worst day ever. Eeyore, you know, uh, that positivity really has an impact on how you feel about somebody. You know, if you have that friend that when you uh, interact with them, that all of a sudden you get that like kind of excitement or that emotional positivity feel, and that friend asks you to do something, you are highly, highly susceptible to that friend's persuasive appeals. So, Thinking about incorporating that into your marketing, how are you marketing or sales? How are you building your influence essentially by being likable? Are you saying thank you? Are you reaching out to your customers? And, you know, there was a, a great car salesman that would send out a thank you note that just said, I like you. I liked doing business with you and use that terminology. Very powerful, very successful car salesperson that ultimately did this. So that's, that's one tool of influence that is pretty simple for us to work on. I mean, it can be very complex, but it's pretty simple to just say, hey, be a decent human being and uh, you might actually you know, increase the chance that other people will wanna do business with you. Super easy to focus on, but like everything else when it comes to behavior, takes practice takes awareness and really uh, probably to some extent a, a strong amount of self-reflection on what you're doing in those categories or how you can improve those to better position your, your level of influence. Yeah. And I think it comes down to intentionality, right? Like a lot of times when I see salespeople or marketing people writing their messaging, there's not an intentionality behind it. It's almost just like product, place, price, promotion. And it's like, okay, that's pretty mechanical. But if you actually think about the way that we as human beings ingest persuasive messages, these tools are great supplements to kind of pop into there and think about with intention. Right. So let's jump to an influence tool number two. And I think this is one that people, they don't like to admit how persuasive this tool is. But this is one of the most persuasive tools, and I think it's probably the most impactful one when it comes to questions of behavior. And that's the influence tool of social proof. 
I could talk about this one literally all day um, because it is the it is the the forefront of our behavioral learning. We see other people do things and then we choose to do them. And as much as we like to feel like we're independent or autonomous, we all fall victim to social proof pretty heavily, I think. So when you say social proof, what types of actions are you talking about that people might be able to relate to on a day-to-day basis? Sure, I'll tell you uh, maybe a story of New York City, the graduate school, uh, one, of the, one of the graduate programs, they were doing a research study and they sent a couple of graduate students out into one of the busy intersections. And all they'd said was, listen, we want you to stand out there. We want you to look up at the sky and just point. And this is pre 9-11. So, I mean, this isn't something that's like, oh gosh, you know, it, it's not even fostering from those feelings. This is before that. And these students are out there and they're pointing up into the sky, looking at nothing with these exasperated faces. And all of a sudden a car stops and, you know, you can see the driver leaning out and looking. And then the next car stops and somebody gets out of the car and they start looking. And then all of a sudden they had to stop the experiment because they literally killed all the traffic, you know, right then and there. And it was an interesting concept of we look to other people's behaviors in order to justify what our behaviors are. So this can be a very powerful tool, say for example, like when I travel, I am very, very considerate of what are the the local culture, what are the local people doing, how are they behaving, and then I model that behavior so that way I can be culturally adaptable or aware and fit in. Um, But we do this so often and it is ever present in all marketing and communications. You may be doing it and not even realize that you're doing it. And I'm guessing probably a lot of social proof occurs on social media nowadays. I'm sure there's just tons of studies that uh, show how social media is really influencing uh, that individual's behavior because you're getting access to more people sharing on a regular basis uh, we'll say opinions, facts, um, and other thoughts that, that might sway them that you might not have quite as much on a regular day-to-day. Well, and that's something that's interesting about social media and you know concepts of social proof is that if we see a hundred of our friends liking something, we're more likely to like it. When you see those advertisements that say, hey, Mark also likes this, that's accessing social proof because it's saying, Jay, you're friends with Mark. And since Mark likes this, you know, you'll probably like it too. Despite the fact that we might have completely different tastes in things, you may like uh, bourbon and I like whiskey, which actually we both like bourbon in this case, but um, you know, it's one of those where uh, the idea that yes, we see all of our friends modeling a behavior or we see a larger community modeling a behavior and therefore it makes us want to model the behavior. Well, and that's a good example. So, you know, we both like bourbon and whiskeys and scotches, and I'm in a Facebook group uh, for bourbon lovers, and you constantly see people post like, hey, is this a good bottle? Is this a good price? And if you look at the comments, which on social media, never read the comments, but (laughs) in this particular group, you'll see half of them say, oh, that's complete garbage. And then the other half is like, oh, that's one of my favorites. And then you get some people say, you know, it's my favorite. But hey, whatever, whatever taste, you know, you prefer, go with it. Or people who say, oh, that's garbage. 
Then you get some that go, but you might like it because you never know. And they're trying not to influence, but they're just giving their opinion. And it's just crazy how many people will sway what they prefer to buy, or at least what they prefer to promote that they've purchased over the opinions of everybody, everyone else in that group. Testimonials, uh, you know, all of the reviews that you can leave on Yelp or any of the, you know, Amazon reviews, all of those are a sense of social proof. If you've ever looked at a product and said, well, there's only been three people that have reviewed it. Nobody must be buying this product. Or you've looked at one and there's 17,000 reviews and it's 4.9 stars. Immediately, your perception of value of that product instantly goes up. It's like, well, 17,000 people thought this was great. That may not be a great product for you, but these are those mental shortcuts, which are, which are called heuristics, right? We can't process every single signal that's sent to us on a daily basis. So we take these mental shortcuts called heuristics. And when we see that 6,000, I mean, this is bandwagon fallacy at its best, right? Like everybody's right. doing it, you should do it too. And uh, I, I wanna share this because I've, I've told people this before and it blows their mind. Did you know, Mark, that there is an actual profession uh, for people who are paid to come to funerals or to come to grief events and cry? They are paid to come, they're professional criers. They call them whalers, um, professional whalers. But there's an entire industry that you can hire somebody to come to a relative's funeral and they will come and they'll cry and what they do is they set the standard or the model behavior that it's acceptable for you to do this. Isn't that interesting? That That's fascinating. I mean, I, I have only known that because I've heard you talk about that. <laughs> but prior to that, I did not uh, know that was a thing. And I guess that's probably in the same uh, vein of seat fillers at like the Grammys and some of those type of awards. When someone gets up, someone goes and sits down. Um, just yeah. kind of giving that appearance that it's always full. Um, and I would also wonder too, you talked about testimonials, the ethics of paid testimonials or the ethics of uh, a company providing maybe to some extent what you would call false testimonials where they're just, you, you see them on Amazon, you see them on different platforms where it looks like a cookie cutter statement five stars and you, and you start to wonder, did they really ever even use or buy the, the product or service? So actually, and if we were to take our, if we were to take our discussion on ethics on that question, technically that's deception, right? Because you're having somebody that says, this product is great, who has never experienced that product, that would technically be considered deception and utilizing that as a persuasive message well, that becomes the question of those ethics. You know, whenever you used to see those, uh, the testimonials, you'd see something, not a paid actor, actual client, or you'd see paid actor representing the voice of our clients. You know, right. so maybe a disclosure could help solve some of that. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really shady uh, really shady testimonials in both directions for that matter. You know, the cyber warfare of going on and smashing somebody's product, let alone uh, ad advocating for it. Those are examples of social proof and, and can be 
both ethical and unethical, I think. So some other examples that, of social proof that we might see in action are, are probably statements in emails, websites, marketing, uh, along the lines of our largest growing product or uh, listen to what these people have to say, uh, join the millions of blank already using blank, whatever it is. Um, those are all social proof that we probably encounter Every time we watch TV on, on commercials. Every, every time. Absolutely. Look at all these people doing what we want you to do. And it's interesting. So there's a really cool, there is a really cool uh, example that Cialdini uses. They modified one of those like late night advertising things that you see on there. Like call now operators are standing by. And they modified the language of that. And they modified it to, if you call and it's busy, please call back. Now you would think like, gosh, that would, that's, that's terrible language. Why would you do that? But what are you actually telling? Operators are just standing by bored because there's nobody calling. So we'll take your call at any point in time uh, versus if it's busy, please call back. Now yeah, our, our phone lines are flooded with uh, incoming requests. Now, if you're making that phone call and you actually get connected and be like, oh, I made it through. I got through. Like, you know, it's almost like a radio uh, giveaway at that point. Like, oh, I got through. Now you're even primed to buy even more so. This, this study was really successful, interestingly enough. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, you know, because people are willing to spend or purchase when they think they've essentially won that lottery, right? They, they got, they cut in line or they, they found one of the, the cracks or, yep. you know, whatever, you, you got a good deal. Um, well, you're tapping into one of the other influence tools too, is scarcity, like the inability to get through, but I got through, I might not get through next time. So there's a scarcity element of influence that kind of comes into that play as well. Well, that sounds, sounds fun and uh, probably does not apply to responding to emails for work. <laughs> definitely not. Let's not. Yeah, definitely not. So there is a dark side to social media. You can see that in influence in, say, things like cults, or you can see that where, um, you know, knock on wood and, and not to get into, you know, something too deep here, but if a celebrity is put into the newspaper for a suicide or dies of an overdose, we actually see an increase of suicides and overdose, particularly from people that may identify with said celebrity or feel like they've had that same experience. So social proof is both a very powerful influence tool, but it is something to be very, very considerate about how much it impacts us. It really connects us to that that intrinsic biological drive to bond, which is our water drive and our behavioral elements program. But it is something that can have both positive and negative outcomes. So let's kick over to another influence tool. This one's, this one's a really interesting one and, and well-documented again by Cialdini, but the influence tool of reciprocity. If I do something nice for you, the odds are you will reciprocate in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, we think about that. And interestingly enough, there was a, a scholar named Alvin Gouldner that tested 
cultures from all over the world. And this is a psychological principle that has been demonstrated to be effective and nearly universal. So if you do something nice for somebody else, there is a essentially underlying expectation that they will do something nice for you. So that would be exchanging gifts, Gift a common, common practice of, I bought you a birthday gift, I'm expecting a birthday gift back, or uh, a holiday gift, or uh, a surprise gift, you know, like, sometimes someone's like, oh, hey, I, I found this, I picked this up, and, and you kind of go, oh, no, I forgot, like, <laughs> or I didn't do that. And then yeah. you kind of go, all right, uh, well, one second, you go rummage through your house and find something that you, <laughs> that you can give them as a yeah. gift. It's even, I, I've even seen people who are so nervous about receiving a gift from somebody unexpectedly at like the holiday times that they keep candles and they keep gift cards and they keep little cards in their car or something of that nature. That if, if I go to Mark's house and he's like, hey, I got you a Christmas gift oh i got you one too i left it in the car i'll be right back and they'll right out there you know right. sign the card and bring yep. it back in i hope you like starbucks mark oh you don't drink coffee she <laughs> they have iced tea too yeah or hot tea <laughs> that's right yeah sure sure you know and nope. the, and it's interesting like uh there's there's great studies so like surveys a lot of people don't like to take surveys and they've done all kinds of tests to try to figure out what if we promise somebody, you know, if you take this survey, you'll be entered to win $1,000. Or if you take this survey and mail it back to us, we'll send you a gift card. And the most interesting way to increase the number of surveys that you actually get is to send a crisp $1 bill. You give them the gift. You don't expect, like they could just keep the dollar. They don't have to do the survey, just send it to them. And that's a really interesting concept inside of reciprocity is if you make it where you do this and then I'll pay you for it, that's transactional. That's not a gifting strategy. Whereas if it's, you're getting the gift regardless, if you do this in return, that would be very kind of you. That is a very different approach. What about some of those home-based businesses where... I host a party, I invite my friends over to buy something. Is that a reciprocity? Is that more social proof? Is that a hybrid or a combination of oh, both? That's, it, is, it is loathed by me. I, I, I don't want to say loathed. It's one of those things where, because I, you know, I will fall into the guilt just the same as anybody else, but it is a brilliant model that utilizes reciprocity and social proof and liking and it mixes these things together in such a compelling way that, you know, if you get a call and say, hey, come to my, uh, you know, come to my trinkets and gadgets party, Mark, I'm hosting this party. Well, number one, you're going to come to this party in this social environment. Number two, I'm going to feed you. So I'm going to give you wine and cheese. Number three, I'm going to educate you about all the value of all of this. And because I've extended this hospitality and grace to you, there is a little bit of an expectation that you are going to purchase something. Um, and you can list any of those, right? Like this could be a, a pampered chef party or anything else. If you've ever had that draw of, fine, I'll just buy one of those steak knives. That's what I'm going to buy. That is a feeling of guilt that is manifested from reciprocity. 
or the first person that buys something, you know, they all of a sudden go, hey, I'll, I'll happily buy one of those knives. And now all of a sudden you're tapping into social proof. And, you know, a, a sophisticated seller also says, Mark was so kind to let us all into his home and to give us this wine and cheese. Here's what I'm going to do for Mark is that if you guys buy $600 worth of stuff, I'm going to give Mark all of these freebies. So don't you want to help out Mark by buying all of these things? And then we're tapping into that liking and uh, that, that reciprocity aspect. You know, my wife and I like to, when we travel around, go do like wine tastings or distillery tastings, things like that. And I have found that like the wineries where I do a tasting and it's free, I feel some guilt and want to buy a bottle. Oh yeah. Yeah. But if I have to pay for the tasting and I don't really, I didn't really care for it as much. I might, I'm probably not going to buy the bottle. But if it was free and I was kind of, eh, I still, there's part of me that goes, well, I feel bad. I should get a bottle. You are falling victim to reciprocity, sir, that they've done something nice for you. And then there's a implied guilt. And you don't even have to want something necessarily to fall victim to the concepts of reciprocity. And I would say reciprocity is also huge with uh, everybody's kids fundraisers. Oh yeah. <laughs> I bought your Girl Scout cookies. I, you got to buy my pizza kits. I donated to, you know, so-and-so's cause for this at school. Uh, my son's in this play or whatever. Um, you know, it's just constant back and forth where at the end of the day, if you just didn't do it and just go, here's 20, you know, you just, I'm putting 50 bucks towards my own kid. You put 50 bucks towards your own kid. We'll call it a day. Yeah. Now, it, it, I, I do like that because it's interesting. We all know that person that doesn't reciprocate and how annoying that is. Like, why am I the person that's literally the only person buying dinner every single time and there's no reciprocation? And we know what that does. You know, that again, that taps into that core biological bond drive of we share amongst those people that we like. And if somebody does something nice to us, social norms, social proof says that we should reciprocate that in return. So those are a couple of influence tools. We have a couple of more, but I think we're actually running out of time. Uh, I, I think I could talk on each one of these for days and just the number of examples and experiences. So I think we're gonna have to do part three, Mark. What do you think? Well, I think part three is needed and I'm, I'm wondering if we really need a part four. So I guess <laughs> we'll have to see next episode if we get through all of it or if we're going to continue this on for another episode. That's right. So hopefully you enjoyed the tips and tactics today to use liking, social proof, and reciprocity in your marketing and sales messages as part of your persuasive pitches. So thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Behave Intelligently. If you enjoyed today's, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Let us know what you think about this episode and email us your thoughts on persuasion at podcast at coeuscreativegroup.com. If you want to learn more about Coeus Creative Group, visit our website or connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in next time when we talk more about behaving intelligently.